Good evening. Dozens killed in Saudi attacks on Yemen, Russia and the United States plan another round of talks Friday as tensions near Ukraine mount. Prince Andrew and Jeffrey Epstein, when is a royal, a royal and a Louisiana Senate candidate smokes a joint in campaign ads while Mitch McConnell accuses Democrats of fake hysteria. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Tuesday, January 18th, 2021. Saudi-led coalition warplanes launched airstrikes against targets in Yemen's capital, Sana'a, last night, following a Houthi-claimed attack on the United Arab Emirates the day before. Up to 23 people were killed in the Sana'a raids. That's according to a tweet by the Houthi deputy foreign minister. Search operations in the rubble are underway. The massive destruction of buildings is seen as people search among debris for survivors in the aftermath of the coalition raids. Media reports claim that one of the attacks targeted the home of a former military official, killing him, his wife, his 25-year-old son, and other family members, among other unidentified people. An inexcusable crime occurred here, said a Houthi spokesperson. The Saudi bombings came hours after a Houthi attack against the United Arab Emirates. A Houthi military spokesperson announced that the, uh, the Yemenis used ballistic and cruise missiles and drones in that attack. The Houthi movement ruling Yemen announced the Yemen hurricane operation was carried out in response to the U.S.-Saudi Emirati escalation, pointing out that the uh, operation succeeded in targeting the airports of Dubai and Abu Dhabi, the oil refinery in Musafa, and several important and sensitive Emirati sites and facilities. Peace activist Kathy Kelly has been following events in Yemen. She says the Houthi attacks came only after weeks of attacks against Yemen. The Yemen Data Project has shown that for the last two months, the bombing by the Saudis has been relentless. And so, of course, it shouldn't surprise us. The Houthis are beginning to fight back with everything they can come up with in terms of um, technology that they have to use uh, drone attacks as well. And, you know, I think the stakes are very, very high. And the Saudis believe that they've got President Biden's endorsement, his approval. There's no indication that the U.S. will stop supporting the Saudi state of siege or the bombing. It seems that bombings rarely achieve anything that soldiers on the ground can achieve. Uh, Is this the preliminary move before something bigger? The bombing does destroy the infrastructure and causes tremendous displacement so that people run for their lives and they end up in refugee camps and are displaced for many, many years to come. Uh, it, it seems that Yemenis, I mean, this is going into the seventh year, heading into an eighth year of this utter misery. Yemenis have been incredible survivors, um, but I I think you're right. Uh, the air wars do not decide governance. So this is punishment? I think it's bludgeoning, deliberate punishment, but it's also an effort to, at theft. I think the Saudis want to be able to take Yemen's resources, and I think they believe that they are a sophisticated country, and this is a kind of backwater country, and why shouldn't they be able to just go in and take the resources that they believe they should be easily able to take? But, of course, that hasn't been the case throughout this entire sordid, horrible war. But until the Biden administration 
matches what President Biden initially said when I think he kind of conned the U.S. people into thinking, oh, this guy's going to put a stop to this. Until that actually happens, I don't think we'll see the Saudis experience any kind of change of path. Has the Biden administration done anything different or been different in its dealings with this part of the world than the Trump administration before him? They used the language saying that Saudi Arabia would be a pariah state if it continued its practices. But in fact, the United States is still sending Saudi Arabia the weapons, still allowing the manufacture of ships that enforce a state of siege, still keeping relations with Saudi Arabia. And uh, I know I, I don't see that it's different from the Trump administration. And, you know, under the Trump administration, the Congress was more vigorous, actually, in trying to put forth uh, resolutions that would stop this slaughter. But where are those resolutions today? Why hasn't the left-wing caucus of the Congress begun to make serious, serious moves toward putting a stop to this? They could. What is it about Saudi Arabia's pull on America that they're such a key part of the American alliance in that region? certainly has been a continuum of cruelty, even stretching back into the Obama administration. And I think they are nervous about losing Saudi uh, alliance because the United States has also engaged in theft in that part of the world and wanted to take other people's resources that aren't our resources and wanted to make sure that the uh, transit routes for bringing resources to the United States would be uh, unimpeded. And I think also, uh, you know, the Saudis are beginning to say, well, okay, we'll make friends with Israel. Maybe we'll start to betray the Palestinians even more. And, you know, the United States doesn't want to uh, turn away from that possibility. And also, uh, just inscrutably, the United States keeps seeing Iran as a threatening enemy. And so it wants to keep the Saudis on board and is perhaps thinking if they alienate the Saudis, they'll never be able to get a signature to the, um, the treaty that they're trying to work out with, with the Irani government. Peace activist Kathy Kelly, the Houthi spokesperson, warned foreign companies and citizens to avoid vital sites and facilities for their own security, adding that the Houthi forces would not hesitate to expand the bank of targets to include more important sites. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken will meet with Russia's foreign minister Friday as the two sides explore whether there's still a diplomatic path to avoiding a conflict in Eastern Europe. Blinken departed today for Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, to meet with President Volodymyr Zelensky in a show of American support. The New York Times reported yesterday Russian diplomats appeared to be leaving Ukraine. The Times reports eight people, mostly the children and wives of Russian diplomats, boarded buses and embarked on a 15-hour drive home to Moscow, followed by 30 from Kiev and a consulate in Lvov in western Ukraine. The Russian government blasted back at the Times, accusing the paper of relying on its customary anonymous sources. The Russian spokesperson responded, Russia's embassy and consulate general in Ukraine are operating normally. They're doing this despite attacks on Russian foreign service workers by Ukrainian radicals and the provocations of local security forces. But the American media have not and will not cover this.
Amid heightened tensions with NATO, Moscow has vowed that it will not turn a blind eye to what Russian officials say is a NATO military buildup near Belarus, a Russian ally that shares a border with Poland. Meanwhile, Russia and Belarus announced military exercise called Allied Resolve 2022 beginning next month. The exercises come over heightening tensions between NATO and Russia. Last week, NATO representatives and Russian diplomats met to discuss proposed guarantees following talks between officials from Washington and Moscow. In Washington, White House press spokesperson Jen Psaki warned today that Russia could launch an invasion of Ukraine at any moment. We believe we're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack on Ukraine. Uh, I would say that's more stark than we have been. Uh, in terms of the decision to evacuate their embassy or to move personnel out of their embassy, we have information that indicates the Russian government was preparing to evacuate their family members from the Russian embassy in Ukraine in late December and early January. We certainly refer you to them for more specifics about what their decision is, but we don't have assessment on why in the meaning. And Saki discussed Secretary Blinken's planned meeting with his Russian counterpart on Friday. I uh, spoke with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. They agreed to meet in Geneva, uh, as you as you noted. At that meeting, uh, Secretary Blinken will urge Russia to take immediate steps to de-escalate. Uh, he will also fly to Kiev to consult with President Zelensky and Ukraine's leaders and to Germany for consultations. As you also know, there is a congressional delegation that is also on their way there. And it's a note. It's an, I would note that that just indicates that support for Ukraine has always been a bipartisan issue, and we welcome that. But where things stand right now, President Putin has created this crisis by amassing 100,000 Russian troops along Ukraine's borders. This includes moving Russian forces into Belarus recently uh, for joint exercises and conducting additional exercises on Ukraine's eastern border. So let's be clear. Our view is this is an extremely dangerous situation. We're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. Uh, and what Secretary Blinken is going to go do uh, is highlight very clearly there is a diplomatic path forward. It is the choice of President Putin and the Russian to make, whether they are going to suffer severe economic consequences or not. And that's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. On Friday, the administration claimed it had information the Russian government is planning a false flag operation, meaning manufacturing an incident to make it look like Ukraine is attacking Russian, uh, Russia to rationalize an invasion. The Russian government has repeatedly denied the allegations. In related news, Petro Poroshenko, who served as the president of Ukraine until 2019, made a dramatic return to the country yesterday to fight charges of treason. One of the country's wealthiest oligarchs, Poroshenko, known as Ukraine's chocolate king, has amassed an estimated $1.6 billion fortune in the confectionery business. Poroshenko was Ukraine's president from 2014. He suffered a crushing defeat in 2019 uh, presidential elections to TV comedian Volodymyr Zelensky. And in more news relating to corruption in Central Asia, but with a twist, Prince Andrew's ex-girlfriend, Lady Victoria Hervey, has called Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell a double act, crediting the latter with luring women for the billionaire pedophile and saying she was duped by the pair. Hervey spoke to British Channel ITV for its documentary, Ghislaine, Prince Andrew, and a Pedophile, due to broadcast tonight. Maxwell was convicted last month on five counts of sex traffic and, and conspiracy and could be sentenced to more than 60 years in prison. Some of her victims were as young as 14. With Epstein dead and Maxwell awaiting sentencing, attention is turned to Prince Andrew, who's facing a civil lawsuit from from. Virginia Jeffrey, one of Epstein's alleged victims. Jeffrey claims that she was attracted, uh, trafficked to 
Andrew for sex on three occasions, at least once when she was 17 years old. International journalist Ian Williams covers the United Nations. He said he met Prince Andrew during a conference in Kazakhstan. He says the prince wasn't making moves on women there, but he might have been in the perfect place for it. The rare opportunity in Kazakhstan, of all places, of meeting Prince Andrew at a British embassy party. His job was to go around drumming up business for British companies. So he was shilling for, um, I think it was British Gas at the time, to try and get the dibs on the Kazakhs gas. So it's it's very um, very topical in a way. Kazakhstan at the time was definitely a place where he could do Epstein-style activities. It was... Um, Talk about the flesh pots of Central Asia. There was free money floating around. And I'm sure he wanted to get his hands on some of it. He got a house at a knockdown price from a Kazakh billionaire, which he resold. There was some property deal involved in the Kazakhs. Look at Kazakhstan. That dynasty's only been around for one generation. Nazibayev is gone, and it looks like he's being cleared out thoroughly now and disowned by Putin and all the other people who helped put him there. It doesn't all go well for Britain, because... Prince Charles, with eccentricities, is not the most popular person in the world. Lots of people find the Queen quite sort of attractive because she was there during the Second World War. And she shared. She stayed in London. She joined the women's auxiliary forces or whatever. So she actually did her bit at a time when these parasites and sharks are, are swimming to warmer water without pausing. All of that good reputation is about to go down. That's international journalist Ian Williams, who covers the United Nations. Prince Andrew's royal titles were stripped by Queen Elizabeth last week after a court ruled a lawsuit by alleged victim Jeffrey could proceed. Russia temporarily sent troops to shore up the Kazakh government during anti-government rioting last week as well. And in national news, Gary Chambers, a Democrat running for the United States Senate from Louisiana, unveiled a new ad Tuesday in which he's shown smoking marijuana. In the highly unusual spot, Chambers, who is seeking to unseat Senator John Neely Kennedy, a Republican, is shown seated in an open field, lighting up a rolled blunt of marijuana and taking multiple puffs. In a voiceover, he rattles off statistics about the drug, including that black people are four times as likely as white people to be arrested for its use. His campaign said the ad was filmed in New Orleans, where the city council recently passed an ordinance intended to remove penalties for simple possession of marijuana. Every 37 seconds, someone is arrested for possession of marijuana. Since 2010, state and local police have arrested an estimated 7.3 million Americans for violating marijuana laws, over half of all drug arrests. Black people are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana laws than white people. States waste $3.7 billion enforcing marijuana laws every year. Most of the people police are arresting aren't dealers, but rather people with small amounts of pot, just like me. I'm Gary Chambers, and I'm running for the U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. 18 states, two territories, and the District of Columbia had enacted legislation as of November 29th to allow the regulation of marijuana for non-medical use. That's according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. Remember the Y2K panic that gripped the world 20 years ago when it was believed the world's computers would crash on New Year's Eve because their clocks were not prepared for the new millennium? Well, the disaster didn't occur in the end, despite conspiracy theories to the contrary. Reminiscent of those days, tonight at midnight, the United States will switch over to the new 5G wireless protocol, and airlines are saying the cra that crash this time might be real. 
President Biden today thanked Verizon and AT&T for agreeing to temporarily delay their 5G deployment near key airports, arguing the decision will avoid interruptions to air travel. In a statement, the president says the agreement will avoid potentially devastating disruptions to passenger travel, cargo operations and our economic recovery, while allowing more than 90 percent of wireless tower deployment to occur as scheduled. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki answered questions today about the potential threat posed by 5G wireless. Ongoing discussions right now with members of our economic team uh, who are closely engaged um, with um, uh, with at the FAA, FCC, wireless carriers, airlines, and aviation equipment man- manufacturers to reach a solution. As you noted, uh, tomorrow is the deadline. Our objective is, of course, to reach a solution uh, around 5G deployment that maintains the highest level of safety while minimizing disruptions to passenger travel. That's what we're working towards. But uh, everyone from Secretary Pete. Buttigieg uh, to members of our economic team are closely engaged in these discussions. Did the FAA drop the ball here? You know, I think, uh, Mary, there'll be lots of time to look back and see how we got here, and I know many of you will do that, and, and of course that, that is understandable. But right now, over the next 24 or less than 24 hours, what we're focused on is uh, trying to come to a solution that will uh, minimize uh, travel uh, travel um, uh, you know, uh, disruptions uh, to passenger travel, cargo operations, and our economic recovery, and that is why it's so important to hopefully come to an agreement and ensure uh, more planes are flying out there. Airlines are using some pretty dire language to describe what's going to happen tomorrow if the president doesn't step in and take action. They're saying that the nation's commerce will grind to a halt. I think what we're trying to do now is come to a solution to avoid exactly that. And it is true that if there are hundreds or thousands of flights that are grounded, that means not just disruptions to passenger travel. That also means cargo operations. That means that goods aren't moving around uh, as uh, as quickly and effectively uh, as they need to in order to to not have supply chain disruptions. Uh, so this is something that we are very focused on, we've been closely engaged on, and we want to avoid that and prevent it. Can you explain why the FAA and the FCC seem to have different views here? The, uh, the FAA seems to share some of the concerns that the airlines have about the possible implications of uh, implementing 5G, whereas the FCC has said, based on the data it's seen, it's not a problem. Well, I think part of this is as having a negotiation and trying to find a solution. Uh, I'm not going to speak for the FCC, which is, of course, independent. Uh, our objective is to prevent this from becoming uh, the economic disruption that you referenced in your question. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. And in more news from Capitol Hill, the Senate started debate today on voting rights legislation that would enshrine a key pillar of the Democrats' platform, but one that's all but doomed by insufficient votes to overcome Republican opposition. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was unsupportive. He says it's just Democrats trying to panic voters. Now, many of these same colleagues have spent weeks thundering, literally thundering, that the Senate's 60-vote threshold is an offensive tool of obstruction. A Jim Crow relic, declaring that simple majorities should always get their way. Ah, but late last week, they literally wielded the 60-vote threshold themselves. A useful reminder of just how fake, fake the hysteria has been. 
Mitch McConnell, to circumvent the filibuster in the Senate on whether lawmakers would even consider and debate the bill. Democrats took an unrelated NASA bill that had already passed the Senate and tacked on as amendments to voting rights proposals, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. A filibuster showdown is still likely to ensure over uh, ensue over whether to end debate and vote on final passage of the bill. Democrats don't have the 60 votes needed to end this filibuster, an obstruction that's expected to kill the legislation. Chuck Schumer said today the eyes of the nation will be watching what happens in this week in the United States Senate. Democrats have tried for months to hold a voting rights debate on the floor, but we have been blocked each time by Republicans. We brought common sense proposals four times on the floor of the Senate. And only once did one senator, Lisa Murkowski, to her credit, agree to even begin debate on voting rights. On all three other votes, not a single Republican joined us. Every one of them voted to block even a debate on voting rights. As we debate these measures, the Senate will confront a critical question. Shall the members of this chamber do what is necessary to pass these bills and bring them closer to the president's desk. Today, we have just taken the first steps that will put everyone, everyone on the record. And that's the Senate Majority Leader, Senator Chuck Schumer. Closer to home and more tragic news from the Bronx after a fire last week killed 17, including nine children. One person has died and at least seven others are injured after a possible gas explosion caused a massive fire and partial building collapse today in the Bronx. According to the FDNY, crews are still battling a two-alarm fire inside a residential building located at 869 Fox Street near Intervale Avenue in Longwood. The NYPD says a 77-year-old female was pronounced dead at Lincoln Hospital with smoke inhalation. Additionally, an 82-year-old female and a 68-year-old female, both stable but in critical condition, were hospitalized for smoke inhalation. The NYPD says five police officers are also being treated for smoke inhalation at Lincoln Hospital and are listed in stable condition. And in political news, former New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said today he won't run for governor of New York, as had been widely expected. He made the announcement in a video posted on Twitter. This is the right place for me to share some news with you. No, I am not going to be running for governor of New York State, but I am going to devote every fiber of my being to fight inequality in the state of New York. We've got a lot to do together. I'm going to share some more news with you in the days ahead. And let's keep this fight going because we proved change can happen in New York. Good things ahead. Thank you, everybody. And that's Mayor de Blasio. De Blasio declined to former Mayor de Blasio. De Blasio declined to enter a crowded Democratic primary field with the incumbent Governor Kathy Hochul facing challenges from Jumani Williams, the city's public advocate, and Representative Tom Swosey of Long Island. A Siena College poll released earlier today shows Governor Hochul with a significant lead, with the support of 46% of Democrats polled. De Blasio at 12%, Jumani Williams at 11%, and Swosey had 6%. Hochul has also outpaced her competition and fundraising, raising a record-breaking $21.6 million so far. And that's some of the news for Tuesday, January 18th, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry, our engineer is Richie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.